0: I always think of these substances as not positive or negative they're neutral it's the way that you use them that fundamentally makes the differences and so if you put the right intentionality in the right energy in the right preparation then the experiences the spirit world uh you know whatever language resonates with you these medicines can respond in kind and so if we go into one of these experiences with a super clear vision of what we'd like to get out of that right in terms of What is your health going to look like in terms of emotional, physical, spiritual? What are your relationships going to look like uh, in a couple months' time? What is your passion for work going to look like? The abundance that you're creating in your life. All of these sorts of future-oriented goals when you set those and have them very deeply held and felt within you, then what the plant medicine can do is actually show you the gap between who and where you are today and, and that person that you'd like to be manifesting and those experiences and that you know that, that experience of life ultimately that, uh, that you'd like to be manifesting into everyday experience.
1: Welcome to the Mentality Podcast. We're recording at the incredible wewood Hall Hotel Podcast Studio. This is a podcast that goes way beyond stigma. We talk about men's mental health and mindset. We encourage the type of conversation that will open you up to another way to live life, another way to see yourself and the world around you. If you are ready for that, you're in the right place. I'm Stevie Ward and I'm an ex-professional rugby league player and captain and now I guess I'm a bit of a podcaster a speaker actor writer entrepreneur i'm still working all that out but our mentality we help men take control of their mindset by teaching them to find purpose resilience and what i believe is the new success inner peace oh, that sounds good if you are that guy who is waking up to the fact that they need to do something different in life and the same old habits aren't working for you, might be time to step up. If you want to start your journey with us, you can go to mentality.co.uk forward slash coaching to join the best team you have ever seen. Okay, so welcome to the Mentality Podcast. Today we have got. Jonathan De Potter and Manesh Green. Jonathan is the founder of Behold Retreats, a bespoke wellness service that facilitates journeys of stealth discovery and transformation, supported by scientifically proven benefits of plant medicine therapy. Jonathan is passionate about raising awareness on the benefits of plant medicine therapy and its potential to improve well-being and mental health. This has led him to launch Behold Retreats in 2020, providing curated programs incorporating a plant medicine retreat in a safe, legal and highly supported setting. Jonathan spent his career working in strategy consulting with clients across Asia, Pacific defining and delivering digital transformation programs. After a number of years in New Zealand, Jonathan has moved to Hong Kong to work with Accenture and most recently worked in Bangkok as country manager for boutique consulting firm Capco. Jonathan felt that despite an objectively great life, good friends and career success, something intangible was missing. As a result, Jonathan took a sabbatical, a year to travel through South America where he attended his first ayahuasca plant medicine retreat in Peru. The retreat experience was transformational and has expanded the state of his consciousness. Jonathan was shown directly the mindsets and behaviours that were keeping him from reaching his potential. Manesh is currently a PhD student in neuroscience at McGill University and has been lead and co-author on over a dozen scientific publications and book chapters on topics including psychedelics, meditation, daydreaming and the default mode network. He is currently conducting research on brain mechanisms underlying LSD, psilocybin and DMT in collaboration with Dr. Robin Carha harris and others from the Imperial College London Centre for Psychedelic Research. In his free time, he also runs a YouTube channel called The Psychedelic Scientist, where he discusses the latest findings in psychedelic science in an easy to understand but non superficial form. Boom. There we go. That's some good intros. That's some really good intros. I'm really excited just from reading the full full shebang there. Um, Jonathan, we'll go to you first mate. Tell me in a nutshell what sparked your interest into this world.
0: Boy, I don't know if I've ever had such a long introduction in my <laughs> life. I, I'm, uh, I'm still blushing here, It yeah.
1: Kept going longer.
0: <laughs> but thank you. I've, uh, I almost feel like I, I um, should it, it take a bow or something like that. Um, uh, for me, I guess it all it all really started after um, five pretty grueling years in Hong Kong. You know, I was like most expats in Hong Kong. I was working too hard. I was drinking too much. I was having uh, a little too much fun on any time that was outside of work and after just kind of five years on that on that treadmill um, I was an atheist at the time and uh, and I just felt like there must be more to life and so I decided to take a year off not really knowing what I was looking for and as part of that um, as as you introd, I um, traveled through South America and, and wound up at a pretty eye-opening experience in Peru.
1: Wow and, and how old were you Jonathan when you decided to take that sparkle?
0: I was almost 33, just brilliant, almost.
1: Brilliant, And Manesh, mate, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into to all this and what sparked your interest in?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, me, honestly, it came in my teens, around 16, 17. Um, I was very interested in meditation, still i am, being a daily meditator for over 10 years. But I was really interested in reading a lot about Eastern spirituality and mysticism and was really kind of enamored by the idea of Kind of purifying and stealing the mind for deeper clarity and insight and enlightenment and all the rest, and uh, I was really into that and you know somehow I my readings in Zen Buddhism and these different areas led me to learn more about psychedelics and then I uh, you know I discovered um, some books, for example books by Stanislav Groff, the pioneering LSD psychiatrist, kind of describing his um, Uh, sessions with clients, with patients, and they're they're basically going through these experiences, these mystical experiences that, you know, usually were reserved for like hardcore meditators or yogis or, you know, people living in the Himalayas or something. Um, And it seemed that these were, these drugs were able to induce these states, um, you know, pretty easily in people who, you know, pretty much had no business having those experiences. Right. Uh, And then, you know, when I contrasted that with like um, this, typical conception of psychedelics grouping them in like the same category as like heroin a lot of the time or something crazy like that. Um, and like, you know, if you take them, you'll go crazy and uh, all the rest. I was like, there's something missing here. Like there's a lot of fear around these substances. Um, but there seems to be a lot of untapped potential. And, um, that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of, you know, wanting to learn more about how, um, our perception of the world, uh, can be radically altered in positive or negative ways and how we basically create our own realities to our own perceptual filters, through our own beliefs, et cetera. This led me into philosophy and psychology. And, uh, I was originally going to be a philosophy and psychology double major, uh, from undergrad. Uh, and then I kind of moved more in the direction of cognitive neuroscience and brain imaging, you know, doing research, you kind of mentioned, uh, initially related to like daydreaming and mind wandering. How does that work in the brain? Uh, did some stuff related to meditation, and then um, as I progressed, yeah, looking at the default mode network, which is the network involved in kind of the processes of our cognition that most make us human—our ability to imagine and daydream and leave the present moment for something else—and our sense of self. And yeah, and I've just been spurred on that path, and psychedelics unify so many of my interests, and they're just fascinating. In addition to having potential for the treatment of mental health conditions. And so I'm just like super passionate on the area and, you know, I kind of intend on pursuing a career in there to make a, a valuable contribution to the field.
1: Wow. OK. Um, Chris, do you want to go into the, the questions? And, and yeah, I, was, with-
3: I think a good maybe starting point. I think most people probably have a conception of what psychedelics are. But, um Manesh, is there like a, a specific technical definition, or uh, could you list maybe the the main psychedelics that um, you research in, or that that are out there, just for anyone who maybe has no understanding?
2: For sure. So, like, I would say the the main classical psychedelics, as they refer to, are LSD, uh, psilocybin, which is the compound in magic mushrooms, uh, and then DMT, which is the compound in ayahuasca. Uh, there's also mescaline, but mescaline actually works slightly different in the brain. Um, And what unifies these drugs primarily is that they act mainly on the serotonin system in the brain. So they basically act as if they're serotonin and activate certain receptors. And in particular, they all activate the serotonin 2A receptor, which seems to be uh, what mediates their psychedelic effects. And so you can say, like, technically, these drugs are all um, serotonin 2A agonist drugs.
1: Okay. And so are they, um, is this something that it switches off in the brain too? Um, and what other things do the psychedelics do to the brain? Uh, is it addictive? Um, is it not addictive?
2: Mm-hmm. So uh, psychedelics are not neurotoxic. They don't kill brain cells. They don't damage your brain. They have no physiologically harmful effect. In fact, there's no uh, cases of people overdosing and dying from an overdose. You might have a crazy terrible psychological experience but but physically your body holds you're not going to die you know and they're not addictive they don't target the parts in your brain that lead to addictive behavior um if the standard test for addictive behavior is like do rats continuously administer it to themselves when it's available and they don't they're actually it's aversive to them they'll administer it a couple times and they'll stay the hell away (laughs) from it they're like i don't want any more of that right uh, so that's yeah. kind of like physiologically it's not you can't get dependent on it so it's not addictive um so, in, term-
1: so even even if you've had a good trip it's it's not addictive it, the, 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 even if the rats have had a good trip they think no nah, i'm gonna leave that for a little while
2: right yeah yeah i mean in terms of uh, becoming physically dependent on it like you could for heroin for example uh or even alcohol that won't happen there could be a kind of psychological desire to do it again but a lot of the times Even a so-called good trip, that's like an intense journey. You just went on and you're going to need some time to integrate and come to terms with it. Most people don't come out of an intense, even if it's positive uh, psychedelic experience and be like, oh, I want to do that again tomorrow. Right. It's a very draining and intense experience and can be destabilizing to do it too often. Um, So I I don't think the the nature of the experience doesn't lend itself to, you know, wanting to do it every day or like uh, on a consistent basis necessarily.
1: Yeah, so I think we're sort of at a landscape at the minute um, where I think people are becoming a lot more open, and people are definitely exploring a lot more and exploring. Yeah, different cultures in the world, um, different sort of landscapes of 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 their mind, um, and and you know, mentality. We're sort of very much into challenging. Meant to be the best version of themselves, and um, this is why this this conversation is really exciting for me. And and I, I'd like to just go for you, Jonathan. So we, we we sort of learned there about how it works on the serotonin receptors, um, how it's not addictive. Um, what did it do for you in that time where you took a sabbatical and you felt like you needed to get off that treadmill, as you say? What is it that? it did for you in your personal experience just to add to that question as well steve and just to frame it a bit jonathan when you mentioned
3: accenture and your journey that doesn't seem like the typical route into this plant medicine world so maybe could you in answering stevie's question frame how and why your relationship about plant medicine or even anything that was um people might associate with uh you know woo woo sort of stuff or you know people often quite dismissive of these things um
0: yeah yeah, and, and, and I totally get that. And I think um, briefly I'll wind all the way back. So I grew up in Hawaii. I was in that environment. I grew up around a ton of substances. You know, most of my friends started smoking weed at like 10 or 11, LSD, 13, 14, even. And uh, I just saw all negativity from all of that sort of stuff growing up. So I, you know, the narrative that we get fed in school in the US is just say no. And so what I saw happening around me kind of matched the narrative that we were given in school. In addition to that, I also came from really hippie parents. So they were super open-minded, super alternative in terms of, you know, do whatever you want and, you know, the everything will be just fine sort of thinking. And I was just kind of like Completely of the opposite mentality, and so I was pretty straight-laced, pretty rational. Went down, you know, the corporate, the corporate consulting route, as I shared with you before, and so it's been and, and an atheistic route as well. So it's been a, a relatively humbling return to recognize and acknowledge that actually there was quite a few things that my parents had right, and quite a few things that I had uh, quite wrong for the majority of my adulthood. And so, you know, just, I just I guess for me personally, I reached a point where. It just felt like there must be more and i didn't i couldn't place for i couldn't put words to it there was just this deeper feeling that it it cannot be that the purpose of life is to chase that next promotion to chase that next girl to chase that next client to chase that next sales deal you know they just it just didn't feel right and i remember looking at myself in the mirror and just thinking that there fundamentally must be more out there and so you know for me i guess what plant medicine has has really helped me with is number one to uncover uh repressed childhood trauma you know i think of the clients that we work with generally speaking i would say that 70%, 80% of clients that we work with generally either know about early childhood trauma experiences or they've, uh, they, they're repressed and then they come to uncover them as they, as they go deeper into this work. Um, and those, those repressed or suppressed or um, you know, early childhood challenging experiences generally are manifesting in your everyday character. So for me personally, um, it was frustration, it was impatience, sometimes even quick to anger uh, and sometimes I would, you know, come out of these experiences and, and kind of look at myself in the mirror and go, like, where did that come from? And And I couldn't really understand why I was so quick to these you know these limiting character traits and they were limiting for me you know there was uh, I was leading a big team during my time at Accenture a team of about 120 consultants and you know when those when those traits manifest you and, you, and your team sees that your client sees that it's not working in your benefit and so you know the, I I was always reading these books you know emotional development books and da, 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 and and I wasn't breaking through into The realm that the realms that would help me understand myself in a deeper way such that I could begin to move past some of these character traits. And so, um, you know, working with plant medicine, despite all of its challenges, you know, I always say it's the hardest thing I've ever done and and easily the best thing I've ever done because it allows you to get this expanded access to what's going on in your subconscious to uh, unlock some of these early childhood memories process the emotions and the story associated with any of those you know past experiences and then well and truly move past them in terms of who you become and so for me that's empathy that's been courage that's been self-love you know more love for others um, and just to be able to turn up that way relative to the way I was in my you know in the in you know five years ago say is um, just a blessing each and every day ultimately
1: and were there any baby steps before you you took the plunge to to go over to Peru Jonathan or is it that you just wanted to get across there and, and really take it all in for what it was
0: yeah, so I actually, when I took the year off, I didn't even have plant medicine in mind. Um, so I started in the south of um, in the south of uh, Argentina and was doing a lot of hiking in the mountains and stuff like that. Uh, and then a couple of friends came and joined me—one from South Africa, another from uh, San Francisco. Uh, and it was actually their recommendation. They said, "Hey, why don't we come join you for a leg in Peru?" That'd be a lot of fun." And then one of them had said, "Hey, I've heard these you know a couple of good things about uh, these these ayahuasca retreats what do you what do you say we check that out and For me that had actually triggered a memory 10 years prior i had a friend who she had a quite a traumatic childhood um childhood growing up i didn't you know i had blessed parents and a blessed childhood but there was still you know there was still repressed memories there um and i remember after a uh she actually did a one month long retreat intensive retreat in peru and she came back a completely different person um and you know she was before she was timid and shy and you know she just didn't have any energy. And when she came back, she was organizing picnics and rock climbing and surfing and all of these different, all of these different things. And it was just like, whoa, you know who is Sophie? What happened to Sophie? And so that registered in the back of my mind. And so when my friend brought this up, you know about ten ten, eleven years later, I was like, yeah, let's let's give this a chance.
1: Wow. And so you you going along to Peru um, with a couple of mates, did that completely hit you? Did that experience completely hit you and completely change your life?
0: Yeah, it was, I mean, it, it flattened me. There's, there's no other, there's no other words for it. What was, I mean, it was, it was as profound as it was terrifying as it was so far outside of the realm of that, which I knew to reflect reality. Um, that, I mean, it was just incredibly humbling. Um, and you know, it was, I was very, You know, after five years of partying relatively hard in Hong Kong, uh, there was a lot that needed to be fixed, Um, and uh, so there was a lot of things coming out of you know the physical body, the mental body, the emotional body, Um, and and honestly, you know, I went to one of the best known retreat centers there, and I now recognize that while I was well physically and emotionally cared for on the spiritual realm. Uh, there perhaps wasn't quite the knowledge that we might hope for, um, for one of these experiences. So there's some pretty terrifying energies, um, not a, not so what you might call so-called a bad trip, but there was a lot of elements in kind of in relation to that, um, And then at the time, you know, there wasn't really much conversation, as, as, you know, Manesh can tell us more about. There wasn't really so much the conversation around integration of experience. So they basically handed me a piece of paper and said, you should probably try meditation and sent me on my merry way. Uh, And so over the course of the kind of three or four weeks that followed... Every, I basically returned 100% back to normal. So I didn't get really any benefits from that initial experience, even though it was so profound and so different and so eye-opening. You know, these, these neural patterns that we have uh, established over decades, they're so, they're, so, they're so entrenched that it's very easy to slip back into your own patterns, your own behaviors from before. And so that's, that's ultimately what happened to me. And so it took a lot more work uh, before I actually began to get some of the benefits that are available through this work.
1: Brilliant, and I just want to ask you, Jonathan, what in specific did you learn about yourself, if if you won't mind sharing that, and and then Manesh, what's what's happening? What's happening in the brain? What clinically can can you see from patients who are going through these experiences? Um, yeah, I want to ask them, and I'll I'll come in after that too.
0: Yeah, so um, for me, it was a lot of experiences about. The effect that I have on people, which is, which was, you know, first I was I was shown all of the strongest emotions that my mother could feel pride and shame and anguish and fear and uh, all of, you know, beautiful emotions and, and really horrible and joy, you know, all of these emotions. And then individually as a third party. I was shown specific instances throughout the course of my life where I had caused those emotions one by one for my mother. And so it was one after the other, after the other, after the other. And so it was just this kind of uh, you know, this this kind of road roadshow through my life, the, the good effects and the bad effects that I'd had. And then my father was next, exactly the same thing. And then other people that were important to my life, that was next. And it was and very humbling as well, and really helped me understand you can show you can show up in such a way that you have a beautiful impact in other people's lives and you could show up in another way and so it's just very instructive to see to see those um those experiences played back
1: wow and manesh what's your experience being a researcher and 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 being the other side of this seeing seeing what happens to to people coming through this and and what happens in the brain to 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 elicit this
2: right uh yeah it's super interesting there's many different perspectives right and the the short answer is like we don't really know right with research is in the very early stages I could say like the general uh, what people think um, but I think there's a lot more to it like like one of the leading kind of uh, perspectives or theories or models is that uh, what psychedelics can do is they kind of or let me back up like in our usual everyday life when we interface with the world we come at it with our own assumptions our own stories our own kind of understanding of what's real and how the world is who I am uh, and all these things and you know, and we need that to survive, to interact. It's like our ego identity structures or whatever, and they're a necessary part of being human and surviving. But, um, sometimes these structures we create are, you know, either harmful to ourselves, to others, or just totally out of whack with what's actually happening. Right. And, and a lot of the time, these models and beliefs are formed in childhood where we could be taught, you know, through our experiences that the world is an unfriendly place that we should be scared that, you know, uh, people are not to be trusted. You know, it could be a whole range of things we internalize as a kid that remain in our psyche um, uh, without us knowing, and kind of influence and uh, basically, you know, determine how we experience the world, right? And our emotional patterns and all these things can be related to these internalized models and beliefs. And um, and so the idea there is that psychedelics seem to kind of loosen these up a bit. They shake us out of these rigid ways of perceiving ourselves in the world and open open us up to seeing things in a new light and you know and when that happens and when our kind of uh, structures of reality are less rigid now um, all sorts of stuff we had been ignoring or neglecting in our mind in the world starts to pour in you're like oh like I never noticed these things about myself I noticed never remember these memories from my past I never noticed that pattern with these people in my life you know and all this starts, stuff starts to surface because your blinders have not been taken off and so, yeah, so a lot of the thinking is that psychedelics put you in this state where kind of your whole experience of reality is less stable and rigid and more flexible and unconstrained. And this can be a source of insight and new perspective and can lead to emotions to come up, as Jonathan was saying, um, m- memories to come up, um, and all the rest. So it seems to, yeah, just put us in a the state where these things are more likely to happen.
3: This might seem a trivial question, but are you seeing these images, Jonathan, in the sense that the way I'm seeing the world now or are you uh, are they more like imagined images or like closer to dreams or between the two is just to get um, get a sense of what what it, what it feels like from the experiential side?
0: Yeah, and often often people describe these these experiences as more real than reality itself. And so in this case, Uh, I was actually watching myself from the third person. So it was almost like, you know, it's almost like you're watching yourself up on stage uh, performing uh, the act of life and uh, to be sitting there and kind of, you know, back in the audience watching yourself up on strokes um, is an opportunity that not many people <laughs> you know in, in normal waking life anyway it's not an opportunity that many people have and so it really it really does just you know as Manesh says it, it really provides a different lens and perspective uh, of of reality because we don't generally get to see ourselves from from that perspective
3: and it that this is a question I guess from Manesh as well but is that uh, I guess some people will be saying that that sounds like a hallucination and there isn't any uh, reality or truth to it. It's just um, you're taking a drug and you're hallucinating. And I, I, this isn't my opinion, but perhaps that might be something people feel like. And they might say, oh, you know, the similar things people have. They're like, well, they've heard these things before. And that's why they've come to it with an expectation of having experiences from their childhood and and meeting entities. And that's why they do it. Uh, is that anything you can um, shed light on, Minesh? Is-
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a good point, right? Because in a sense that, yeah, our beliefs and such and expectations do structure the experience. That's like a hallmark of psychedelics is that they're so dependent on the context that you take them. Take uh, either the internal context in terms of your beliefs, expectations, mindset, et cetera, and the external context in terms of the, terms of the environment that you're in. Um, but I think at the same time, there are... Um, Aspects of the experience that seem to be almost independent of your expectations. It's like you can have particular expectations and beliefs, but the way they manifest might be similar across people. Um, And and a lot of the times, for example, someone you will go in wanting to have a good time and then have all these uncomfortable memories come up and they're like, shit, I'm at a party. I don't want to deal with this right now. But, you know, and then they go into a bad trip because they're resisting what's happening. Um, And so I think there are certain... Aspects of the experience that are invariant that are consistent across people and I do believe you know having vivid recalls of memories and stuff like this um, Is one of those things um, and I should say that You know, there's this is mischaracterization of psychedelics that um, You know, you'll take them and you'll all of a sudden start seeing things in the world that aren't there at all and you know you're going this hallucinated reality that's not going to happen unless you took way too much of the drug or something like this. It's like that. Those are very, very rare cases. Most of the time, you'll either see things that are in your environment kind of transfigured or changed, or you have your eyes closed. And that's when you really go into the visions and, or it's dark in ayahuasca often is dark, or your eyes are closed. And then you go into these basically dreamlike states where you're remembering memories and kind of exploring your psyche. And it's almost in a visual dreamlike way, right? Um, and and then in that case, you know, you could say they're just hallucinations, but they seem to be very personally related and charged with emotion. And they seem to you to be real. It's like, how could you doubt those? Right. And, and even if recalling memories from your childhood was a result of expectation or belief, it's profoundly therapeutic and helpful. So like the, whether it is or not is almost irrelevant. Right.
3: Yeah. I, I guess in a sense, the way you described it earlier is actually, it's more of a hallucination to live your life with these repressed, uh, with these expectations you've got from childhood and you see things through a certain lens. And that, in a sense, this is shaking you out of that hallucination um, by putting you through these experiences that you need to probably go through on a personal level.
2: Yeah, totally. I think it comes down to like how close are you to reality as it's happening, right? And we can get so lost in our mental structures that we're so distant. And psychedelics can alert us to that sometimes. So it's totally, totally that. And yeah, it's like, I think life is almost always a mass hallucination that we're going through, but it can be more or less healthy, right? And uh, yeah.
1: It's just the, uh, Albert, Einstein, uh, Albert Einstein said, life is, um, or reality is an illusion, albeit a very persistent one. Um, so I guess you just you just um, interchanging the the hallucinations the illusions. I won't go too deep, but I just uh, want to add into that, and I I think there's probably some overlap to talk about when it comes to mindfulness and meditation. Um, there's a lot of things flooding in to me to to raise and, and to sort of um, same keep compare. making
3: more notes. So we'll never get on the ball
1: <laughs> Yeah. No, I know, and it just. I sort of I was going about life the other day and um and it's almost like I don't know if this is going too deep but we'll see where we go. Um there's that phrase or there's that sort of statement that people say is I can't live with myself. Um and it's almost like you're talking there, um, Manesh about the ego um and sometimes the beliefs, the stories, the thought patterns that they're in can be um sometimes harmful, it can sort of cause pain, it can cause people to be stuck, because that's basically their reality, as we're saying, like they're in a framework of things that you've alluded to there, Jonathan, that you're growing up, you're sort of going through these emotional patterns, these experiences, and then, you know, to keep us alive and and how we interact with the world, your ego's there, to make sure that we can get on and and to keep us safe, to keep us... um, yeah, to keep us safe, I guess, and alive. Um, but it, it's, it sort of relates to meditation because I think one of the big reasons for why I meditate is to drop away from and keep dropping away from um, the story of life or the life situation that you're in. Um, and and that can be the external situation, but also the internal sort of... Um, assault course that you can find yourself on sometimes. And I I remember reading Mike, Michael Michael Pollen book and just thinking about that that framework and those belief structures being um ski slopes and, and the tracks that you'd leave as is, is in a on a on a ski slope. He talks about taking psychedelics is like shaking the snow globe. And that snow filling in those tracks, those patterns, um, if you relate to being a neural pattern, neural pathway, um, in order for you to build new ones or to create a new self um, or an adapted self. So, that going back to that earlier thing that we said, um, or I said about not living on myself, are you sort of looking at altering that self, bringing more um, perception, bringing in more experiences? changing the lens of how you look at the world is is that what we're looking at with with psychedelics and where are we at um after that big rant where are we at with um the research for uh, what's going on in the world where's what's the what's the psychedelic revolution what's the current psychedelic revolution in terms of of treatment and, and research too
2: Totally. So I think a lot of what you said is accurate, right? It's kind of what I was alluding to before you could think of in the snow, the tracks are our beliefs and assumptions and patterns, you know, things that are shaken up and made less kind of to follow the analogy, less deep, you know, we're more less likely to go into there. And yeah, meditative traditions have a word for those in Buddhism, it's Shankara's in, in like Hinduism and in, in yoga, it's uh, um, samskaras basically the innate tendencies of the mind, um, that we naturally gravitate towards. And those seem to be kind of, um, yeah, loosened up a bit, you know, it's less, less sticky. Um, and yeah, I think in terms of psychedelic research and what's going on, I think the, one, of the, one of the most exciting things about psychedelics compared to other drugs that they're often, you know, uh, compared to is that, um, after one to three experiences, a lot of people are reporting benefits that last, you know, six months to a year, uh, later, maybe longer, right. Whereas take an antidepressant, you're dependent on this thing every day of your life. Um, and you have a whole host of negative side effects. If you get off it, you're probably going to relapse even harder than you did before you got on the drug. Um, if it's just terrible, right. And then, uh, so the major breakthrough here is that psychedelics, instead of hiding your symptoms and just like pushing them out of the rug, they make you face the stuff you don't want to face to make genuine progress in yourself, heal yourself and grow so you can live a more filler, uh, fuller and healthy you know, integrated harmonious life. Um, and I think, and it does that by shaking us out of our patterns and our ruts, instead of, you know, doling us out. So we don't feel any extremes of emotion, including negative, which is what antidepressants do. Um, so I think the revolution there is like the potential for bringing psychological experience back into psychiatry and emphasizing how people need to actually do work on themselves, not just dole themselves out with these drugs. Right. Um, and just like, yeah, draws attention to the importance of inner work as well.
1: And w- and what's the journey look like from where we are now? I don't know if it's stage free research in terms of treatment resistant depression, um, with psychedelics, what, like what's, what's the roadmap look like from where we are now to having this possible through say the NHS or, or, um, regular sort of healthcare,
2: totally so so the the process for bringing a drug to market is uh you got to go through phase 1 phase 2 phase 3 clinical trials and like phase 1 are just like is this thing safe can we give it to people it's just like safety is the main concern is and then maybe a little bit is it effective but that's like less important it's just proof of concept phase 2 is starting to look at um is it actually effective in a kind of preliminary way um, and then phase three is large scale, multi-site, sometimes international studies with thousands of people. It's this really work on a large scale in a large population. And so right now with psychedelics, with psilocybin, um, in particular, I do a lot of phase two trials going on. So trials with anywhere from, you know, uh, 20 to hundred people ish, uh, being done in, in, in the UK. Uh, a lot of it is led by compass pathways, a company down there. Uh, also in the States, uh, trial, a large multi-set trial um, run by USONA, which is a nonprofit institute. Uh, Canada, there's a few startups trying to get in the mix, but um, not much yet. Um, so there are a lot of phase two trials going on and uh, assuming they, you know, show things consistent with past research that they, they are really effective and have lots of potential. And then it's going to be another few years. Uh, I'm not sure how long exactly, maybe two, three years. Um, minimum to really show that they're effective on a large enough scale for them to be approved by the FDA and whatever, uh, you know, federal uh, drug regulators. Um, By the same time, it's interesting to note that, um, you know, there are places in the states, for example, like Oregon, with their bill 109, uh, 109, I think it's 109, yeah, and they're gonna, they've legalized psilocybin therapy. and in particular retreat centers, et etc., there, there's like state-sanctioned psychedelic therapy that's going to be allowed in the near future. And you're kind of trying to create the infrastructure there. And so it seems to be, even even prior to the psychiatrists having access to it, there are going to be different uh, pockets in North America and perhaps Europe. Um, you know, there's already the Netherlands and Europe, but where people can take it legally, you know, before the, the three years of research that's required. Um, and so... Yeah, there's a lot more to say there and obviously places like jamaica and other places have uh are legal suicide is legal and you can just go there and do a retreat if you want to at any point um but
3: uh yeah. presumably that's where jonathan are you trying to fill that gap as well with um that you mentioned if you want to jump back to the first time you did it you said there was no like aftercare or you didn't really get what you needed after and and i guess the, the framework manessa is talking about is how we could put that whole thing in a, in a consistent framework in um, within the context of perhaps an NHS or something where you would get aftercare. you don't just get handed a leaflet is, is that what sparked off your own um, creation of your your retreats
0: yeah there's so for, for me there's a couple extra dynamics that i'll throw into the conversation so i think a lot of the the predominant narrative in relation to psychedelics from a research perspective is about treatment right so what we've done with the the current mental health paradigm is we've set this kind of subjective bar at this level and we've said that people that are below this bar have a problem they they need treatment um, in order to get back back to zero or, or above zero. Um, and that people above the bar, well, there's nothing wrong with them and, and they don't need to worry about anything. They can just kind of get on with their life. Now, fundamentally, I think that's, that's just not the case. And so I think, you know, Manesh would probably agree with me when we look back to the ancient traditions and we hear about these mystics and reaching higher states of consciousness. The reality is that we are all at a kind of level of consciousness today, and we can all continue to elevate our state of consciousness. And and there's no upper limit to that. That can just go and go and go. Um, and so often, when people reach a certain place in that in that continuum, you'll find that they are spending more of their time and more of their energy continuously, you know, doing their own more and more of their own inner work. They find that to be the most rewarding um use of their time and so at the moment what I think there's a couple of reasons why we see the narrative being dominated by treatment uh, and one that's of course that you know these these are currently schedule one drugs typically so there needs to be a valid reason and you know I'd like to elevate my consciousness doesn't seem to be a good enough reason in the um, in the modern culture so I think that's one uh, and then I think I think two the other dynamic is you know that obviously in the West, we have a little bit of a different paradigm, right? So when we speak about these clinical trials, what we're actually talking about is not psilocybin, we're talking about synthetic psilocybin, which is, you know, the isolated compound in the synthetic form. Whereas what we're working with generally with Behold Retreats is plant medicine. So we're actually using the natural compounds like you know, psilocybin mushrooms or ayahuasca, which has something like 463 compounds in it, which doesn't really fit the Western medical model. So when it comes to the motivation for Behold Retreats, there's a couple of different components and and motivations behind that. One is predominantly to work with people who are already doing well that want to be doing even better as opposed to the people who are really struggling in life so we don't really accept like acute depression or addictions or stuff like you know the the people who are really struggling in life those are not necessarily our clientele most of our clients tend to be people who are doing you know okay maybe they're having some struggles but like they'd like to be doing better and often you find that you know people in the professional world in particular they they're putting forward a good front but the reality behind the scenes is a little bit different in terms of how how happy they are with themselves, their families, etc. The second dynamic is really guiding people towards these natural substances, right? I think in the West, we have this natural tendency to try to isolate out that single compound. We want to patent it. We want to control it. We want to put it through a uh, a manufacturing process and okay that, you know, maybe there's a time and a place for that, but I actually think that there's a lot of benefits for these substances naturally. Uh, and so trying to, you know, encourage more and more people to connect back to these natural plants and substances. Uh, and then finally, yes, absolutely, providing the right container for this work because just going on a retreat, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna have your head blown off or, or the doors blown off uh, of the hinges, uh, but whether or not that's actually what's in your highest interest, uh excuse the pun, is is another question altogether. And so what we do is, you know, really deep and guided preparation before retreat and guided integration after a retreat to arm people with the tools for the mental work, metacognition, becoming more aware of their limiting thought patterns and beliefs for uh, emotional work. So being able to feel into those lower level emotions, shame, guilt, fear, apathy, pride, envy, scarcity, all those things that we carry layers around layers of around and so how do you actually get into the physical body and beginning to release those out because fundamentally when people have those tools ahead of a retreat then they can do they can make some really amazing progress on retreat and come out of those with not just a life-changing you know profound trip but real you know real actionable insights that they'll be able to bring into their everyday life and and make improvements to the quality of everyday life which is really the purpose of this work it's not to go and have a ego bypass where you you know think your god for an hour and a half it's it's to really improve quality of everyday experience
1: uh, that and um, that's yeah go on steve uh, i was just gonna say on, on the back of that mate what um maybe jonathan you could talk about what a journey you know when you're taking people on this journey looks like um and then manesh if you can talk about some of the stuff which you need to keep in mind when you're actually dealing with these drugs because it's it we you know we, we we put a big sort of disclaimer in here um that you know they can they can, as we've said. You know Jonathan's um, mentioned it there and um, put a bit of a metaphor in there that it can blow your head off. But you can, it can sort of you know, if not used rightly, if not used correctly, um, you know they they can they can really sort of, I guess destabilize you or or sort of um, bring on bring on a, a challenging bad trip. Um, so could you just talk about how you? Journey with people, Jonathan, and 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 how how you go through that process, and and, then Manesh, if you could talk about what to keep in mind in terms of setting and setting and and all the other things that you need to consider.
0: Yeah, sure, and just just to build on what you were saying there, Stevie, I think absolutely. You know, I I always think of these I always think of these substances as not positive or negative; they're neutral. It's the way that you use them that fundamentally makes the difference. As as Manesh was saying before. Um, And so if you put the right intentionality in the right energy and the right preparation and really treat these experiences as sacred, then the experiences, the spirit world, uh, you know, whatever language resonates with you, these medicines can respond in kind. And so if we go into one of these experiences with a super clear vision of what we'd like to get out of that, right, in terms of we always encourage our clients to get clear on. What is your health going to look like in terms of emotional, physical, spiritual? What are your relationships going to look like uh, in a couple months' time? What is your passion for work going to look like? The abundance that you're creating in your life. All of these sorts of future-oriented goals. When you set those and have them very deeply, deeply held and felt within you, then what the plant medicine can do is actually show you the gap between who and who and where you are today, and, and that person that you'd like to be manifesting, and those experiences, and that you know that that experience of life ultimately that uh, that you'd like to be manifesting into everyday experience. So, um, yeah, in terms of you know not not to repeat myself, but what we what we do is you know. To, to coach people one-to-one or in a group setting um, to really help them understand where they're at mentally and emotionally uh, and begin to see that they are not their thoughts, that you know they can come to watch their thoughts and thank their thoughts for you know the defense mechanisms that they represent often, which is, oh, you can't do this or you shouldn't do that. Uh, and that those are just fundamentally limiting beliefs and uh, that they can be dropped uh, with, with time and with energy and with metacognition processes and, uh, and also that emotions can be released out of the body. And so when people get all, you know, when they get these tools, when they finally click and they start to be able to have breakthroughs and shifts, then that's very powerful. And and as much as possible, what we're trying to do in those three weeks before a retreat is to provide people as many of those shifts as possible because, these experience these experiences amplify. So the more of the lower level emotions there are, the more of those that are going to be amplified in the experience. So the more we can release ahead of the time, then the better you know ceremonies we're going to have on retreat. The better, the better time they're going to have. The more breakthroughs they're going to have, and you know their win, our win, everyone wins. So that's really what we're trying to do with people. And then on the other end, you know, if you if you you know, say if you um, discover some repressed childhood memories, it's very co- it's very common for people to kind of want to go and maybe even confront their parents and say, "Hey, when I was five years old, you said these things to me, and it's really limited my growth and development." And and maybe that's the right thing, but you know, foremost, we always make sure that our clients integrate these experiences and those. Uh, those feelings into their own character first. So take a couple weeks, you know, integrate that experience uh, into your own being. And then after three weeks, if you f- still f- want to go tell mom how you feel about something you, she said when you were five years old, then, okay, then you're doing it from a different place than, you know, just coming out of the retreat experience itself. So it's, you know, it's a very guided process to try to help people integrate all of that into their own experience and then integrate it into their outer experience in, in the family life, etc. Um, after that.
1: Amazing. And Manesh, could you just talk about some of the stuff to consider when, when dealing with these um, psychedelic drugs?
2: Yeah, for sure. And yeah, kind of as Jonathan alluded to, like the context in which you have the experience is so important and as important as the drug itself. Right. And um, as you kind of mentioned, Stevie, it's like uh, it's often discussed in terms of set and setting where um, set kind of consor- corresponds to your mindset. So What is your intention? What are you going into this uh, experience expecting or wanting? Um, You know, what beliefs do you have around what's possible and what these drugs can do? Um, And also, how do you currently feel mentally and kind of physically? You know, are you in a good place? Do you feel calm, grounded, centered, relaxed? Or do you just come out of a breakup or you just get fired from your job and you're kind of anxious and and fearful and, um, you know, and have negative emotions just lurking right there? Um, Or physically, are you very um, kind of, yeah, again, agitated or restless. So these things correspond to set and like really structure your experience and to kind of, you refer to psychedelic, uh, sorry, yeah, research, scientific research, um, they found that the more preoccupied you are with, uh, problems and concerns in your life, um, and the more that those kind of infringe on your experience, the more likely you're going to have a bad experience a more, or a challenging experience. So like the more you're able to let go and surrender and you know, leave your problems of the day at at the door, um, the deeper you're able to go and the more positive your experience is. Um, So really a a sense of surrender is essential as well. Like have an intention, but don't be attached to how it pans out. uh, Is essentially how a lot of people say it. So that's like another set. And then setting is your physical, social and cultural environment. So, physical environment, do you feel safe? Do you feel well attended to? You know, is there nothing unpredictable gonna happen? Um, is it aesthetically pleasing? Is it nice? Does it favor uh, positive emotions? Um, you know, and also importantly, does it draw you outwards or inwards? Neither is better than the other. It's like, what are you looking for from the experience, right? If you want to be drawn outwards to connect with nature, be in a beautiful setting, be in the forest, be at a beach, want to be go internal, go somewhere a bit more secluded where you can close your eyes and go inside. Um, in the social context you trust the people around you if you're scared somebody's judging you or you're getting weird vibes from somebody That's just gonna be amplified during the experience and that can destabilize you put you in a weird headspace make you feel uncomfortable You don't want that you want to be around people you trust who want the best for you and who will support you if you go into a bad place and then culturally um, this is kind of intertwined with set but it's like you know, what's the expectations for what you're going to be doing and what's going to happen? What's real? You know, what's possible? Um, how are you, like, for example, are you bringing the culture of kind of, uh, scientific materialism and, you know, spiritual stuff is woo and it's all just, you know, matter, or are you allowing yourself to, you know, you know, angels are real and entities are real and, you know, all this kinds of stuff. There are extremes you can go to and, I think that'll, you know, influence your experience as well. You might have an experience of angels if you're open to it, whereas you have, might have a more earthy materialistic, you know, nature experience or earth experience if you're, if you're not open to those kinds of things. Right. And again, neither is better or worse necessarily. It's like what flies for you. Um, and each, you can argue each plays a similar function. It's just dressed in different, you know, garb, uh, to whatever people prefer. Um, so I think, yeah, in tandem, all those things really make a big influence on the experience and. This is why you, you, people are scared of psychedelics because they heard their friend who kind of had this crazy anxious experience and thought they went crazy. But chances are they didn't do it responsibly with these things taken into account. Right. And you, and you can go from your experience can be either of heaven or of hell as like, you know, all the Soxley said, and it really depends on how you approach it.
3: C- can I ask uh, a specific question around so, so so i looked into this quite a few years ago i read waking up by sam harris and i read um uh huxley's daughter perception i think it was and uh, i suffered and still suffer with ocd and um, it kind of comes up now and again flares up usually an indicator of how the rest of my life is going but I, i'm far better placed than i was so it's kind of characterized by unwanted thoughts and then um, compulsions to get rid of them I was in a really bad place and I looked at this as one of the ways of the metaphor we're using earlier is, um trying to get rid of those pathways or make them less strong. You know, the snow globe metaphor. Um, and, and my grandma had schizophrenia. So the route I went down, they, they said um, that there were links between or there were possible links between um, ayahuasca, DMT and permanent schizophrenic episodes. And I was advised not to go on it. And I went much further down the meditation route. So I did the 10 day Vipassana silent meditation retreats. I've done, I have a daily practice as well. I've I've done some other day retreats and I've gone down that route, which obviously is a far slower route, but with the same goal is I wanted to try and overcome some of these negative mental patterns. So uh, the two questions, I guess, is the link between schizophrenia, is that a real link and two, can meditation get you the same benefits? I mean, it has got me benefits, but not the um, it's, it's the complete instant transformation that these plant experiences can get you. Um, but meditation has actually transformed my internal world for the better. But it just mm-hmm. took a long period of time.
2: Yeah. Um, in terms of the schizophrenia thing, yeah, I mean, there is a risk that it can if you're if you're kind of already predisposed to schizophrenia and you might have an episode of psychosis in your life. It could speed that up. Um, but again, like, I think there's a lot of fear around it in the psychedelic circles, because right now, you know, the research is even in a, it's in a partic- particularly uh, precarious stage where it's like, we don't want one crazy experience to ruin everything. Right. Yeah. So it's like, I think in the future, they might be open to treating, uh, people with schizophrenia, with psychedelics, maybe in smaller doses. And I've talked to people who are therapists and practitioners who, who have explored that, um, just in their own research and think something is there, but like people haven't tried it yet. So it's really unclear, uh, what can go on there because, you know, when you're in a psychotic break, you kind of your world, the world structures are kind of dissolving and they're unreliable, you know, and you don't trust in them. Um, it's similar to a psychedelic. So therefore if you take a psychedelic, it might st- destabilize you even more. Right. But like, for example, uh, in kind of a chronic psychosis people re-stabilize but now into some crazy delusions that you know don't map onto reality and maybe people in a chronic psychosis might be able to use psychedelics to snap out of their delusions that's the idea but it's a high risk territory right and we need more work um and then the other question I'm drawing a blank can you remind oh, me around
3: uh, meditation getting you to the same realizations um and yeah the, the overlap like you mentioned you were initially interested in kind of eastern philosophy and Uh, When you mentioned Sankara, it just brought me back to that retreat. And um, yeah, I found that really powerful that a lot of these things were almost stored physically. I don't know if you could talk on the science of that. And that when I let my mind stop being distracted, they bubbled up and I had to kind of go through and feel it. And then afterwards, a lot of those things never affected me as much since. So yeah, could you, um, again, I've kind of asked two questions there, but yeah, can you get to the same sort of realizations with meditation and plant therapy, and perhaps the specifics of the physics, the physical side of emotions being stored.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. Obviously, this is a very deep topic, and I can't uh, give it any definitive answer, but I think the the overlap there is like, one of the things psychedelics do is they reduce your ego defenses, right? They make your ego more flexible and, and less rigid, and therefore it makes more space for things to come up. And then in meditation, what you're doing is you're basically cultivating a distance between yourself and your thoughts to give more space for stuff to ar- arise, right? And this is what allows um, trapped emotions and sometimes memories and things come up uh, while you're in meditation. So in that way, it's very similar in in the sense of um, creating more space in your psyche and uh, for things to come up that need to come up. Um, but at the same time, I think, of course, you know psychedelics really expedite the process in the moment. Um, and can perhaps more easily take you to really deep states. Like, um, for example, I'm not sure if uh, how possible it is to meditate yourself into an entity kind of experience. Um, maybe in extremely rare cases, but you know it's not that uh, not easy to go there. But then on the other side, with meditation, you're making since it's like a progressive cumulative journey. You're making deep lasting changes to yourself. Whereas with a psychedelic, you can enter these states, but then, you know, as Jonathan was saying, go back to how you were before. So meditation is a longer but more lasting route, potentially.
0: You 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 took the words literally out of my mouth there, Maneshma. You know, shortly after my, my first ayahuasca retreat where everything returned to normal, uh, I went on my first vipassana retreat. And, you know, sample size one here. But... I definitely got more lasting benefits out of my Vipassana retreat than I did out of my first ayahuasca retreat. Um, and, I, and I think that's reflected, you know, the, the reality is there's, I know so many people who have been doing this ayahuasca stuff for decades and, you know, their lives are still not that good. They still got, you know, they still don't believe in themselves. They still got horrible relationships and they're, you know, they're, their lives around them are just kind of a disaster. So again, it's just to emphasize that it's not necessarily, I mean... Yes absolutely these these plant medicines these psychedelics can occasion really profound states but unless you're coupling that with the mental and the emotional work that you're doing yourself it doesn't necessarily lend you land you in a better place it's really you know i, I think meditation as a you know as a more sustainable practice and continuous improvement path is is far more beneficial say than uh trying to you know every every weekend or what have you trying to uh go a little bit further with psychedelics say
1: yeah it sort of relates to um the physical the physical world i guess your physical body you uh and and this is something that we put in within our memberships, evolve membership, and it's all trying to help and helping people implement habits more, meditation habits, um, gratitude habits, and doing those and compounding these these sort of these mental workouts, if you like, um, to to make us all feel better in the world and make us a little bit more resilient in life, and you know that's that's sort of the training to do with the mental side of it, but you I guess you. In the physical way too, you'd be going to the gym three times a week, four times a week, as opposed to just thinking that you're gonna do one Iron Man and and everything'd be sorted. You know, it's um, I think I think you've got to realise that it's there's there's, there's um, a lot of context around it and and um, practice um, and training to do to do when you want it to become uh, a better version of yourself. And I think these these sort of um pyrotechnics or fireworks of um the psychedelic world, you know, I imagine that they sort of can help propel you a little bit on that path that you want into go on already, that the of the intentions I guess that you wanted to go on already. And um I guess this is a good question to ask off the back of that. So the microdosing, that's sort of a bit of a a little more sustained, um easier practice of psychedelics could you talk a little bit about microdosing is it something that you do jonathan and and manesh what what's what's the crack with that
0: i might actually invite manesh to start because my my opinion of it is 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 um not very exciting okay
1: you go manesh (laughs)
2: um yeah microdosing is interesting right we do have very limited research on it and a lot of research has actually suggested that a lot of the effects that people report are placebo and you know uh, that's just what the research has shown us um and but of course there's so many people anecdotally who've had huge effects of microdosing and you know microdosing retreats microdosing coaches microdosing programs like everything right um, that doesn't mean that it does anything i those just exist but um and uh so the research is pretty there is some research showing it has an effect on you know uh having more positive emotion or perhaps things related to creativity a little bit but not like huge effects not nothing reliable necessarily yet and uh and, and yeah in some studies it's like we you ask them what you expect is going to happen and then measure what happens and then there's a total mismatch like what they expected and what they thought the microdosing did for them when they did the actual cognitive tasks in the lab it was totally out of whack with what they even thought was going on so like people
3: and that just
2: shows that people can, are, don't have good introspection on what's going on for them right And then in other places, the people who were given a sugar pill had basically the same scores as somebody who got got a microdose, which is a placebo. And so it's a kind of a mess there. So it's really like, you know, yeah, it's hard to make any firm conclusions right now if I'm going based on the scientific research. And I think the scientific research has suggested that we should be skeptical of only anecdotal reports too, uh, because like it could a lot of people have strong expectations around it and expectation is powerful right it's the power of the mind and belief
3: so yeah
1: how cool how cool is I know you mentioned it's just placebo but how cool is placebo that's like
3: it gets dismissed but what an amazing phenomenon that
1: actually (laughs) believing
3: (laughs) it can give you some of the benefits
1: yeah yeah like I I, I'm suffering I'm suffering with a brain injury at the minute and it's been 14-15 months and near the early stages I'd speak to nutritionist nutritionist at me um, old rugby club at Leeds Rhinos and I'd be asking him about, it might have been medicinal mushrooms or these different um, things I'd hear about. And he'd just down the line saying no, there's no evidence to support that. That's not going to work. I'm like, yeah, but some, some of these things don't tell me that it's not going to work because there's a, there's a chance, there's an opportunity for placebo to come in and work. Um, it probably saved me a lot of money, but um, he sort of dashed away that belief that, that could have stopped me having a brain injury for such a long time.
0: <laughs> the I was just going to say you know the other interpretation of, of placebo which I think is much more powerful is that it just demonstrates that we can heal ourselves with our minds, right? That's that's really what it's what it's telling us and I think there's so much so much magic in that, you know, it was, it was so funny. I, I hadn't actually heard what you shared there. Uh, Manesh, that people had these uh, these out of sync expectations of their own performance on cognitive tasks, which is which is pretty funny. But my own my own personal attempts with microdosing, I've always found that either it's nothing, or I've um, I've exceeded uh, I've exceeded the microdose, and then the rest of the day is really? <laughs> relatively unproductive. <laughs> so it's, I've just I, and I think it's also very subjective. I think you know we're all so different, right? There's I know like. For example, some of um, some of the the facilitators we work with, they they do some tests for people ahead of um, ahead of uh, ceremonies, and they will find that you know. One medicine is not suitable for this person, and the other medicine is suitable for these for this person. So, we're also, you know, our, our makeup is so different that, um, all of these things I think have we're so subjective and different in our experience, let alone the medicines, let alone the combination of the two. So, it's it's always up for grabs, you know, for yeah,
1: sure. And I just want to go over to Chris because I imagine you've got a, a list of stuff, mate, that you want to go into.
3: Yeah, I guess this is, um, I, I expect. Uh, neither of you are going to come down cleanly on this one and I guess I'm agnostic myself in it but but when I started going into the um, meditation and and, uh, you first put that distance in yourself and your thoughts and you get on the longer retreats you sometimes get just like moments that uh, seem to sound similar to what people get in the psychedelic retreats but it might just be very fleeting and uh, it it led me into just looking up panpsychism and universal consciousness and things like that which again, I'm completely agnostic on, but I'm just more open to them being true than I was before. And you mentioned twice, Jonathan, about formerly being an atheist. So I'm I'm presuming you're implying that uh, doing these plant medicines has led you to revise that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not asking people to say definitively, yes, there's a universal consciousness, self-delusion. I think the self is quite evidently an illusion, but that's a separate point. But, um, yeah. Have you got any thoughts on, has it led you to believe that perhaps maybe universal consciousness theories aren't as crazy as they might initially sound to people?
0: So I guess there's there's two aspects of this that, I, that I'll bring into the conversation. I guess the first would be individual experience and the other would be what I've seen some of my spiritual mentors capable of doing. Um, so I think from my own experiences, number one, absolutely, like there's 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 a greater divine order uh, that is at play here um, that, you know, honestly provides great comfort. If, if as an atheist, you take kind of this chaotic model of the universe and that everything's just fighting for survival and that there's no method to the madness. And it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit depressing actually, when you think about it. Um, But to know and to feel that there's this higher order and that things are evolving as they should, you know, despite the many challenges that we have, you know, individually and collectively, um, does does provide a a much healthier perspective and a more optimistic perspective, I think, for for our individual and, and collective direction. Um, in terms of, you know, these experiences themselves, you know, there's, there's a bit of a hierarchy in terms of the mystical experiences. So often, you know, you, you kind of often you might start with one that's kind of self-love, uh, which is this you know, opening of the heart towards the self, where you just like, ah, oh, you know, and it's it sounds a bit silly, but to really feel that you're loving yourself. The second is kind of often around universal love, and that's this much bigger love that just extends far beyond. Uh, any rationality, and you just kind of understand that it's a it's a universal law that kind of transcends all rationality. And then up into, you know, these other experiences, whether it's interconnectivity of all things or God consciousness, and, you know, the list goes on and on. And we can really experience a lot of what we are and what the universe is and the relationship between those things. And so, you know, as this as that work progresses, then we begin to have deeper and deeper access into the nature of consciousness and collective consciousness. Etc. And so, you know, there's there's some people who have gone. You know, for example, my my mentors that I learned from, they've they're 25 years down this this path, and and they've run out of teachers, and they're still learning themselves. So uh, there's so much to learn about, um, you know, the the micro, the microcosm and the macrocosm, and you can travel uh, virtually anywhere and and know anything in relation to the laws of the universe through this work, which is very, very exciting and and very profound. And what I think draws a lot of people to continue the work, just, you know, even if they've quote unquote, solved their mental health challenges, there's there's more to be learned uh, through this work.
3: Minesh, I need you to come in and say now that you, you've seen in the research lab that it's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's
2: interesting, right? If I played the scientist hat, i continue to do that. Uh, uh, like researchers are looking at you know uh, mystical experiences and experiences of oneness, etc. But like it's super in its infancy, right? It's like even just saying like, oh, did you have a mystical experience? As if it's a yes or no question and there's no huge diversity of types of experiences you can have each each with their own phenomenology and all the rest Um, So like science is acknowledging that they're a thing that people seem to have these experiences But there it's hopefully it's like totally lacking in characterizing in detail And also people are researchers are typically very explicitly metaphysically agnostic, right? It's like Yes, people have these experiences. We can study that as a phenomenon but whether they point to any broader reality outside of the brain like that, we're not going to comment on that's a usual stance. It's like these things happen that we can't deny that, but whether they say anything, you know, metaphysically is, is, uh, I think mostly disbelieved by a lot of researchers, at least publicly. Um, for me, I guess, yeah, I drift between agnostic and acknowledging or like, for me, it comes down to the idea that consciousness is primary consciousness is is the precursor or prerequisite for any anything to happen, right? And um, and like obviously reading, I personally haven't had a full experience of oneness with the universe or a total ego death or you know un- unity with the Godhead or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think you know just phenomenologically, if you still your mind and your mind's no longer a thing and you withdraw your senses, you know, pratyahara and yoga. Um, what's remaining? It's like that pure consciousness, that awareness, right? That is always there, never goes away. Uh, is there when you're young, yeah? When you're old, you know? Uh, and is that the fundamental substructure of reality? It seems to be like phenomenologically the case, right? Um, so I would say, from that st- standpoint, I do view that as the fundamental reality that's always there. That's the only constant, you know, that is truly there is the fact that there's a field of experience or field of consciousness of awareness, um, in which things seem to occur, you know? Um, so I think in that sense, you can unite that, uh, that idea of pre-consciousness with God or divine intelligence. Um, because if that's the fundamental reality, then it seems that all material creation and experience and dynamism in material reality, uh, com- comes out of that. It's a secondary uh, kind of feature of that, you know, Um, And whether it's distinct or not or just a fluctuation or wave or ripple within that, um, you know, we can't be entirely sure. But yeah, I mean, that's that's where my thinking goes. And I think a lot of this stuff is where the mind and our conceptualizations break down. And we go into the intuitive realms of consciousness, which are, you know, not uh, based in discursive, discriminating intellect, you know, Uh, and therefore we can't really talk about them. You can only experience them. Um, And then you get into fuzzy grounds because most people in today's culture is like, oh, if you can't talk about it, you can't conceptualize it, it doesn't exist, which I don't agree with. uh, And it just like kind of keeps people in a tiny box when the reality is much larger.
0: There's there's one thing there that I that I really love, which is consciousness and is primary, right? And so the way that the way that we see the universe is just a reflection of our current level of consciousness. And you know, my personal view is if that if there is to be a, a meaning to life, it's it's definitely not to sit behind a desk nine to five. It's to see whether you can see your own consciousness from yet a higher vantage point. Um, and as I was sharing earlier, there's there's really no end to that. And so. Um, You know, just learning even some of the some of the ancient scriptures and and some of the ancient wisdom uh, to kind of shine a light on the path of what a higher level of consciousness might look like allows us to just continue to abstract away from this kind of, this current present experience of reality. And so I think, again, that's something that psychedelics also do as well, is they provide temporarily a different perspective back upon ourselves so that we can begin to make um, more on a day-by-day basis, begin to make those meaningful steps towards a more elevated consciousness on an everyday basis without any sort of,
2: you know, acceleration.
1: Manesh I don't know if if this is right to ask you this or not but have you had an experience yourself with a psychedelic Mm -hmm.
2: I have yeah it's an interesting I've avoided in case you haven't noticed uh, mentioning anything (laughs) but it's like an interesting place for researchers to be because you know uh, people get a lot researchers get a lot of like uh, get a lot of pushback for talking about their experiences Um, so okay how it usually is if you talk about your experiences people will say oh you're unbiased you're kind of trying, you drank the Kool-Aid, you're just trying to prove your own biases and conclusions now. Um, and therefore you can't, you know, you shouldn't be given funding, you shouldn't be trusted, uh, etc. And this really happened a lot in the in the 60s, in the early 60s when psychedelics were first being researched. There was many kind of public debates and um, back, to, back and forth papers between scientists kind of uh, denouncing a lot of the researchers who were also taking it. Um, so that, that's a very thing entrenched in the psychedelic science culture. Um, but at the same time, if you've never taken a psychedelic, you never experienced it, you're just dealing with these abstractions and numbers and you haven't had have a clue what they actually represent experientially. And I think having experiences and knowing the inside of a psychedelic experience is essential for creating hypotheses, really understanding what's going on and in some sense, you know, being the outside objective observer of something that's inherently subjective is just kind of silly right <laughs> um so yes i have had my share of experiences and, and retreats with ayahuasca and other things so but i usually don't like to go too deep into it in, in public settings
1: for those yeah. reasons it's like it's like you get commentators on football that have played uh, football before so they get them in as the experts and then to to have the experience to be able to commentate on it that's sort of what you're doing in it manesh a little bit
2: hmm totally
1: Chris, do you want to, do you want to have, a, have a crack anymore before I give Jonathan a a, a, a long outro? <laughs> yeah, um,
3: I was just going to say, it, it just flagged in my head.
1: And I think um,
3: both Jonathan and Ness have done an amazing job at, at stressing this. But just for anyone listening who's thinking of going out and picking their local magic mushrooms and just diving into the deep end, um, just to reiterate the... The, the word I was thinking when you were talking about earlier is just to have a lot of respect for these things and that they're really powerful tools. And like you said, they're not good or bad, they're neutral. But um, yeah, just to reiterate, if anyone is interested, and hopefully we have um, made some people interested here to, to really uh, do the research and really think about the context if you want to try it within. So look at Jonathan's retreats and uh, follow the psychedelic scientist on YouTube and, and, um, yeah just have, have respect for them I think is uh, a really important message to, to stress towards the end um, I, I, I'm i sure you two would uh, would agree but yeah I wouldn't want someone just diving in now giving their local drug dealer a call and saying how much acid have you got or something but yeah <laughs> yeah
1: it, it, it does it does need that precursor to it I think and uh, I know Jonathan was talking earlier about um, the sabbatical and, and sort of Jumping into it, but I think maybe you know when, when we're talking about these, have these conversations. I think you know the mindfulness, the meditation, even flotation tanks. I know have been sort of spoken about to to sort of um, ease you into um, looking into um, what is beneath. I guess the the mind and 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 the, you know the old the own inner workings of of your own mind too. Um, but yeah, is, is there anything that you guys want to add that, that you feel is um, something to, to go off um, when, when we're looking at closing this conversation?
2: Yeah, I would have said what Chris said, but he already said it. So that's great. Just be careful. You know, these things are extremely powerful. Uh, approach them responsibly. You know, no matter how much experience, you know, how, much, like, how much of a seasoned psychonaut somebody is, they still approach it with respect every time because there is an element of unpredictability uh, there. And so always, you know, approach with caution, take things into account. Um, I do have a video on my YouTube channel on how to prepare for a psychedelic trip, which is, I think, pretty comprehensive. I did it almost a year ago, I guess, but it's on there. And so that's a great resource. Um, And yeah, just be very careful with it. And, you know, do note that it is illegal in most places as well. So, you know, uh, there are places legally you can go to and uh, with people who can guide you well. So do your homework as always.
0: Yeah, the the last point I'd uh, finish on just to uh, help people find good experiences is, you know, I often I often pick on this point, but I do feel like it's an important one because you can go online and, and look at these retreats. And what you'll find is that all of these retreats are rated as five stars. So what I always encourage people to do is to look past the retreats themselves. What you're actually looking for is people who've made substantial improvements to the quality of their life and generally over a period of time rather than, oh, I had a really, you know, I had a really great ayahuasca retreat. And it's like, yeah, that's okay. That's fine. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what we're looking for, definitely. But, but that's not actually what we're looking for. At the same time, what we're looking for is improvements to quality of everyday life. So, I always say to people, if you know, if uh, we're not the right place for you, then you know, we always tell our clients like, look, we're, we're probably not the right place for you. But the first thing I tell them after that is, don't be shy to ask for references and don't be shy to speak to those references and understand where they were before in terms of health, where they were before in terms of relationships, lifestyle, passion for work, abundance, and where they are now. And you should be hearing and seeing and feeling that they've had a real transition because what's super common, I feel, is that people say, oh, yeah, I've had this life-changing experience. And then when you look at it objectively, they haven't actually made any improvements to their life. They haven't made any changes to their life. And so um, that's really what I would encourage people to think about is like each of these experiences, as you said, Chris, as you said, Manesh, you know, that really should be respected. And each of these experiences should be serving as an improvement to quality of everyday experience. So if that's not the case, then kind of take the time and the energy to reassess what you're doing and what you might like to change up so that you can get more out of the next
1: one. I think that, I think those are both really great points, um, and and yeah, I, I think looking at the framing of the whole situation and the actual um, long lasting effects of it is is really important, I guess. When when looking at these, um, just want to thank you both a lot for um, for for turning up, uh, virtually turning up, and having a bit of a podcast with me and Chris. It's it's been um, really insightful and um, a really I guess important conversation for where we're going in terms of um, mental health and, and possible explorations to, to better that too so thanks very much guys um, Jonathan where can we find you and Manesh where can we find you too pal
0: yeah um, you can find us on Behold Retreats uh, or at Behold underscore retreats on Instagram and uh, if, you're up for a, if you're up for a game changer let us know and we'll see if we can be of service cheers
1: and, and Manesh
2: and me uh for my youtube channel you can find me on youtube the psychedelic scientist i'm also active on instagram under the psychedelic scientist as well and my personal twitter is at m nero so at m g i r n n e u r o m gurn
3: nero
1: amazing and chris where can we find you <laughs> <him? laughs> at CPO o'connor 87. <laughs> yeah have you got all old- chris to, to no
3: just again just say thanks I- I uh, it's an incredibly, incredibly interesting topic, and it's really—I feel very lucky to speak to people who have expertise in it. So, yeah, thanks to both of you. And I think it'd be great to get back in touch in a few years and maybe see what the state of play is with research and things like that. So, um, yeah, thank you. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers.